Welcome to this month's MacLearning.org webcast. I'm Scott Morris, your host and moderator. Today's webcast is actually part one of a two-part accessibility series. Next month, uh, we will have Mike Shabanek talk about new accessibility features in Leopard Client. Uh, and that uh, webcast will actually be on October 31st, which is one week later than the usual fourth Wednesday of every month. Today's webcast is entitled Software Accessibility current issues and emerging solutions. Again, this is a MacLearning.org webcast. For more information and follow-up information, you can go to our website, MacLearning.org. We're joined today by two presenters who are uh, making their presentations uh, remotely. First is Mike Pacello. Mike, are you with us? Mike, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, well, welcome. Welcome to uh, this month's webcast. Also joining us today, is Yuta Trevoranis, the director and founder of the Adaptive Technology Resource Center at the University of Toronto. Yuta will uh, present first, and then uh, Mike, you'll pick it up uh, about midway through. Yuta, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining both of you. Uh, I know uh, you've been quite busy, but I really appreciate you making time and joining us on the, on the phone this morning. Uh, Yuta, we're going to go ahead and go to your first slide, and you can take it from there. Thank you, Scott. Um, first, I'd like to set some context of where I'm coming from. I'm the director of the Adaptive Technology Resource Center, and this is a center at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Canada. And we've been, um, since 1994, trying to proactively work with um, emerging technology develop developers so that those emerging technologies are inclusively designed. Um, so that people with disabilities or individuals who have um, alternative access needs are accommodated right from the start. Uh, we use the lessons of levers, food chains, and concrete in that we have uh, fairly small resources, but we hope to uh, make the, the largest impact by creating exemplars that act as challenges. Our philosophy is a philosophy of inclusive design, and um, this is because we believe that innovation occurs at the margin, that if you design in, um, information technology or academic technology inclusively, you uh, garner greater flexibility and responsiveness in the systems. It helps to spur creativity and agility in the development team. And um, it also, we find in education, helps to distill what really matters, what in fact are our teaching goals, what are our education goals, and it benefits everyone. Um, most of you will probably have heard of um, a saying, the curb cut phenomenon or the curb cut advantage. Basically what this means is that when you design for someone um, with alternative access needs, you're usually making the design better for everyone. And one example of a digital curb cut would be um, captions, those text um, lines that c come across your television, uh, although they are created for individuals who are hearing impaired, um, only 2% of the users of captions have a hearing impairment. Most users are either people in noisy bars, spouses who want to, who have another spouse who wants to go to sleep while they watch the rest of the television program, or uh, people in exercise facilities. Uh, designing for someone um, with a disability tends to mean that the design is more usable and uh, a better experience for everyone and that new in innovations arise. Um, it also helps to um, uh, guard against 
the dangers of a designing for the norm, stagnation, shrinking of ideas, self-perpetuating rut, and lack of innovation. So I would encourage anyone that is working on um, academic applications or in um, developing IT to consider inclusive design. One of the other um, areas that motivates us is research into learning outcomes and the effects of, of e-learning on education. And um, most of you will have, have um, oh, and I am not, sorry, Scott, have you been following with the slide? I, I have, you know, I, I've been anticipating. We are on slide nine. So, uh, what have we e-learned? Right. So um, we've had approximately 20 years of e-learning in both higher education and K-12. And um, luckily, we've amassed a, a fairly large corpus of research showing what is, in fact, um, what is the outcome of e-learning? How does it differ from traditional learning? And if you go to slide 10, there's, um, I've renamed this uh, corpus of research into more of a what have we relearned in another context? Because I think one of the things that's come out of our experience is that um, the, the tenets, the principles, the um, information or the, uh, the uh, what, we re what we learned in traditional teaching largely holds within e-learning. If we go to slide 11, um, back um, several years ago, there was a, a, what seemed to be a fairly large news-breaking um, report that came out in the e-learning area, and that showed that e-learning or computer-mediated learning or online learning um, or distributed learning or uh, distance education does not save money, does not save instructor time, and does not shift the bell curve higher, meaning that students are not performing better or getting better grades when uh, we use e-learning. However, if we go to slide 12, um, what we did find was that um, when we have computer-mediated learning, the bell curve is compressed, meaning that a students who had difficulty with traditional delivery were doing much better, and it seemed to make life easier for students. Of course, um, the students who were high achievers performed closer to the, belt, to the median as well, but I won't get into that this time. Um, the other thing that we learned was that there were certain determinants of success, and this is the relearned in another context that action and interaction help with learning outcomes, that personal relevance of the content helps um, with learning outcomes, that personalization of the user interface, the processes that the students needed to go through, the educators needed to go through, helped in learning outcomes, and that the convenience and trustworthiness of the tool played a large role in how well um, individuals were learning when uh, learning was computer-mediated. If we go to slide 14, so beyond no significant difference, we found that um, e-learning or computer-mediated learning, online learning, gave us the opportunity to emulate one-on-one -on -one teaching, address educational breakdown, and if we did it well, allowed a scaling of a small class experience to large classes. And that um, um, was especially the case when we went beyond the traditional metaphor of learning in an online environment and we looked at problem-based learning and discovery learning and interaction and feedback between students and between the student and instructor. So we learned that 
um, e-learning can address education breakdown through addressing the mismatch of pace, the mismatch of knowledge assumptions, and the mismatch of learning approach with teaching approach. And this is the um, significant piece for inclusive design. Because we have um, the ability to have redundant presentation of information, flexible sequencing, choice of modalities, because we can present a different picture, a different set of content to each individual learner, and we can uh, optimize the learning to each learner, uh, we can uh, address education breakdown for, that arises from a number of different problems that students might have. We've relearned that every learner learns differently, and if you personalize learning to match the needs of each learner, then the learning outcomes improve. This led us to, um, if we go to slide 17, <laughs> a redefinition of disability in an e-learning context. So um, in our work um, through the ATRC and with many of our collaborators and in many of the projects that I'll be discussing, and in the standards uh, work that we're doing, we've redefined disability as a mismatch between learner needs and education offered. So it's not really a personal trait, but an artifact of the relationship between the learner and the learning environment or education delivery. Someone who is blind and in a classroom may not, in fact, be experiencing a, a disability because um, the presentation is completely audio, but someone who has not uh, for whatever reason, receive the background knowledge required to um, take advantage of the lesson may. Accessibility is therefore the ability of the learning environment to adjust to the needs of all learners. Slide 18. Um, so accessibility is promoted by having um, a flexible education environment, curriculum and delivery, and by having, um, when this is not possible, when the um, education environment, curriculum, or delivery cannot be adequately transformed or, or shifted or changed, then we need the availability of adequate alternative but equivalent content and activities. And we need an environment that allows each learner to meet their full potential through optimization of, of the um, education environment, curriculum, and delivery. Slide 19. Um, in order to do this, we need a personalized learning approach. And the personalized learning approach is somewhat different from previous approaches to accessibility. And many of the guidelines and specifications and many of the policies that we see in academic institutions. But it is something that I'll be discussing further in terms of how this is done and something that is uh, gaining uh, popularity in many campuses. When we talk about optimizing learning for every learner, if we go to slide 21, um, a number of teachers or professors will say or have said, you need to be a miracle worker to optimize learning for everyone in my class. We're finding that classes are um, increasing in their diversity and instructors everywhere from um, kindergarten through to lifelong learning are having less time to prepare, less funding for human resource support, and this seems to be a worldwide phenomenon. So how can we expect a professor, a teacher, an instructor to um, meet, to optimize learning for each and every learner in their class? Well, um, the one key to this is that we are in the miraculous digital age. Um, a digital resource shared is not consumed, 
and we have the multiplier effect of sharing and pooling resources. We're in slide 21, by the way. Um, and a digital resource can be automatically transformed. So it need not be up to the instructor to optimize learning. We can take advantage of the um, computer-mediated system to optimize learning for each learner. We also, however, therefore require a community of networked educators. And this is a philosophical change in many academic institutions and, and many schools, um, especially within uh, certain university environments, because we have set up a culture where uh, individual academic achievement and performance and, and um, does not lend itself necessarily to pooling and sharing resources. But in order to optimize learning for each learner, we do need to share and pool resources. We need to reduce redundancy. And in fact, pooling resources allows us to do that. And it also allows us to polish and refine rather than replicate. And um, through uh, computer-mediated education and online learning and, and various systems to support this, we can have more sophisticated me mechanisms of attribution to give the glory that um, some academics and educators require. So what do we need? We need computers for educators. We need computers for students. We need accessible computers. We need assistive technologies. And we need a network classroom. The, the one um, blip that has happened recently, and I'm on slide 24, is um, that we've had a bit of a crisis in the assistive technology uh, area. Assistive technology is, are the alternative access systems that people with disabilities use to be able to access the computer and the content that is on a computer. And with the change in uh, the technology of web applications and the technology on the web, um, we have had a confounding of the strategies for interoperability of, of most assistive technologies. So assistive technologies including things like screen readers and on-screen keyboards, uh, screen magnifiers, etc. We have distributed applications and we have a lack of semantic information that would allow these, those assistive technologies to uh, be able to interpret what is going on in, say, a learning management system or a, a learning object repository or a, a student portal or an enterprise system. And the other um, uh, problem that is happening within the AT market is that we have um, a very, very small market with a very small customer base. Um, so developers of assistive technology need to worry about interoperability with many, many applications. If you are the manufacturer of a screen reader, then your screen reader needs to work with almost any application that you would encounter on a desktop or any web application. And those are constantly changing. When you have uh, very, very few resources to be able to keep up with that change, and when you have um, developers of those applications keeping their specifications and the communication protocols proprietary, then you have to basically hack or reverse engineer those applications. And this all leads to um, great difficulty in keeping up with uh, the academic software or the academic applications that students with disabilities need to use. And I think Mike is going to talk a little bit about this as well. It's creating a major gap between the access that students with disabilities experience versus the access that others would experience. 
So what are we doing in the inclusive design field or in the accessibility field to address both this agenda of inclusive e-learning and to um, deal with the, the issue of the, the problem of the, um, assistive technology gaps? There are basically, and, and I'm on slide 26, there are basically three approaches to meeting accessibility commitments on the web, and I'm talking about the web, but this also applies to other areas. Um, we can have a single compliant resource approach, meaning that you have um, a single learning management configuration, you have a single web page configuration, and the idea is that this configuration uh, should address the needs of, of everybody with a disability. So whether you're blind, whether you have um, a hearing impairment, whether you have a motor impairment and cannot use a mouse, um, the single resource should meet all of your needs. The difficulty with this approach is that frequently what happens is it's accessible to everyone but optimized for no one. And um, also in a, say, an academic context, frequently very um, valid and good resources uh, are not offered because they can't be made fully accessible to everyone. And so this approach frequently causes um, developers of academic content to have a negative attitude towards accessibility because it becomes the, the reason why certain resources can't be displayed, certain um, new technologies can't be explored. The second approach is a media-rich plus accessible alternative approach. And here what happens is you have the um, interactive, uh, innovative, new um, uh, resource approach application for everyone, and then you have a link saying click here for the accessible alternative. And, and unfortunately what happens is this accessible alternative becomes the poor cousin of the other and is not updated very well. And the thought that one resource can optimally meet the needs of someone who's blind, someone who has a, a physical disability, and the full range of needs that uh, individuals with disabilities might have is, is also a bit of a myth. So the third approach is a transformation-based approach. And on um, slide 27, uh, with, in the transformation-based approach, we're using uh, the ability of a computer-mediated environment to transform the user interface, the content, the method of delivery to um, dynamically match resources and resource delivery to the needs of each learner. And the difference is that we're not doing just in case, we're doing it just in time. Um, we have resource compliance. We, we, don't have res we don't have to have a single resource meeting everyone's needs. We have system compliance. So everyone's needs will be met by the system, not by a single resource. And we hope that um, it will be optimized for each individual as opposed to being accessible to everyone and optimized for no one. Slide 29. To support this, we've been working on an, a set of standards in, in two standards environments. The first is in the IMS Global Learning Consortium, and here they're called the Access for All Standards, and they've been recomm IMS recommendations for several years now. Um, these have also then been moved into the ISO, into an ISO standard, um, because ISO has greater adoption in, in many more countries around the world. And these are the ISO 24751. 
And um, basically, these standards are in two parts. One, to describe, um, to have develop a common language for describing the needs and preferences of the learner, and at the other end, to have a, a description of the resources and the user interface or the, the mode of delivery. And when implemented, these two standards um, allow a learning management system, a portal, or whatever com computer-mediated uh, web service um, may be used to match the needs of the individual learner with the resource, with the UI components um, that meet uh, those needs. If we go to slide, the next slide um, on tile, um, one early uh, challenging exemplar that we created to show this is called Tile, the Inclusive Learning Exchange. And um, I would invite you to visit Tile and try it out. Um, here we have an e-learning environment that allows learner-centric transformation of learning content and delivery. Um, if we go to the next slide, you'll see a um, typical lesson unit as it is uh, displayed to most students, with the exception that we have um, this particular student has chosen to have an overview of the actual learning content on the left-hand side. If we go to the next slide, you'll see the um, one of the screens in the preference wizard, and the individual learner is choosing to have this displayed, may have a, a vision impairment, and is choosing to have it displayed in high contrast and um, a larger font. And then if we go to the next slide, um, that same content is displayed um, meeting those learner needs. Uh, one of the other things that this particular learner has decided to do is that they want to highlight the, where they are at at the moment on the navigation bar on the left and also to cross out what they have already covered. Um, this is just a very simple example. There are many of other ways in which a learner can express their particular preferences regarding learning approach or needs regarding access. This, if we go to slide 34, um, we now have a, a very large international project funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation called FLUID. And uh, FLUID is a project with participation of um, more than 26 universities around the world and many companies and, and organize, other organizations. Uh, to support the precarious values of usability, accessibility, internationalization, localization, quality assurance, and security within open source and community source um, academic software projects. And the, I, the web page is displayed here. Um, the so if we go to slide 36, um, how we achieve this is by um, having a number of swappable styles, swappable UI components, and these, uh, we swap these at either at um, runtime, so when a student with a disability um, logs into or enters a learning management system or a, a, a portal, then um, that portal would automatically transform to meet their particular requirements or needs. Or it can be done um, 
during configuration because the uh, advantage of the fluid approach is that it can also meet individual institutional requirements. It can allow an institution, because we have swappable styles, we have swappable UI components, if an institution such as a university has multiple applications and they all have different user interfaces, then they can create a consistent user interface across the institution using something like the fluid architecture. Similarly, if um, we have, say, an out-of-the-box learning management system and um, the original language is English and this is to be presented, say, in Quebec here in Canada, then um, the uh, language used in the UI can be swapped in and out. And that would be another example of add configuration. So to support this, we're developing an architectural framework for a flexible UI, a living library of robust, usable, accessible UI components. So the idea is that this library will grow and that the more components within this library, the, the larger the range of individual needs, institutional needs, um, local needs will be able to meet through the UI components. We're also developing a community processes that support innovative, high-quality user experience design and development in community source projects. The community source projects participating include Sakai, UPortal, Quali Student, um, Moodle, and several others. The tools and processes for developing and implementing um, the modular shareable UI components are also developed, being developed, and then um, mechanisms or authoring tools and authoring supports for refining those components. Uh, slide 38. Uh, the technical um, process of doing this either runtime or at configuration time uh, transformation include a JavaScript toolkit in the browser and then um, a RESTful interface with uh, as little as possible actually being done on the server. Although because we are um, working with uh, countries where bandwidth is an issue, we have both um, a server-biased and a client-biased approach. If we go to slide 39, um, you ha can get a sense of the, the life cycle of a fluid component framework. Um, the, when we receive um, or when a student initiates a request to a learning management system, um, the browser is transformed um, by uh, applying specific styles, loading JavaScript and rendering the markup. Um, we then initialize the, uh, the um, component framework. We uh, apply the transformations. We set up the components. And then um, we uh, apply the appropriate rendering templates. And then um, the component optimized for the individual learner or the set of components <laughs> appropriately um, integrated is ready for the, um, the users in the configuration that they have specified in the user preference. So this is um, one particular project that we're doing um, within the web application domain. We, we're also um, attempting to apply the principles of um, 
individually optimized learning in the mobile domain. And this is, um, if we go to slide 40, we have another project called SKIP, which stands for Smart Campus in Your Pocket. And here we're taking that individual optimization onto a mobile platform. And the way that we've initiated this is by having a, a very large participatory design project, um, engaging students from every discipline. And um, besides the um, inclusive design component of this project, one of the interesting things is that I think for the very first time we have ethicists, anthropologists, um, individuals who are worried about the legal issues of privacy and security in, at the same table, on the same project, working together with um, computer scientists and engineers and uh, coming up with a fairly interesting challenges. And I think for the first time, scrutinizing many of the technologies that are becoming part of our daily life. So we have um, unexpected design challenges like how do I lie about my location and keep it secret from my friends when I want to have meet up with someone that I don't want them to know about, or other user requirements that really we hadn't thought of before. The um, SKIP is a context-aware, location-aware um, uh, system, mobile intelligent assistant for students. And it's also connected to a social network where there are a number of information stores that are created, maintained by students. And all of this is um, customized or personalized to each user using an inform information broker and um, a great deal of intelligence about what that individual needs, what that in individual wants, what context they're presently in, what location they're in. And um, besides being um, customized to each individual learner, of course, part of that customization is customized to uh, needs related to disability. And so uh, um, part of the work is to uh, make sure that we have things like talking signs or use the system to, to provide the equivalent functionality of talking signs, guidance regarding um, most accessible entrance, alternative formats for lectures, uh, information about um, where to get accessible resources, uh, uh, social uh, meeting places where uh, there are other individuals who um, have particular resources that are required, etc. The, unfortunately, my concluding slide is not here, but um, what I wanted to conclude is that um, in this age when um, consumption does not in fact consume and um, space has no limits, there, there are really no excuses left for not being inclusive. The, um, while uh, the online environment and the changing technologies provides us or gives us many challenges, it also gives us an opportunity to address accessibility uh, needs and to apply inclusive design in, in very creative ways. And now I'll turn it over to Mike, who I think is going to expand on a number of these themes. Okay, thanks uh, very much, Yuta. Um, I just have to uh, say that after we've gone back and forth uh, between Yuta and I and, and uh, the folks at Mac Learning, over who should go first. Now that, I'm, now that I'm looking at what I'm going to be talking about and what you'd have just uh, completed, probably would have been good for me to give you uh, to, to have gone first. 
because the level of detail that she's provided uh, in the e-learning space, particularly as it relates to accessibility and, 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 uh, and learners with disabilities, is, is really fundamental and core uh, to uh, what, what we're both all about. And that is, uh, if you will, moving, moving mountains that I think that the both of us have been doing for, uh, for at least 25 years and, and, and probably more, uh, though neither one of us would be willing to, re to reveal our true ages as, as, as long as that's concerned. So let me uh, begin uh, with our, our title slide here, uh, what I'm going to talk about, Next Generation Software Accessibility and Building the Third Wave. And again, what, what Yuna just talked about really is part of that third wave. She used a, a, a lot of uh, words, um, a great vocabulary that, that is really becoming more common to our area of, of technology, that is the area of, uh, of uh, accessibility to people with disabilities. She talked about things like transformation and personalization and optimized accessibility and, and um, uh, inclusive, uh, inclusive uh, technologies. And, and really those are common buzzwords that, uh, that we're finding we're able to um, uh, integrate more into the uh, mindset of, uh, of engineers, software engineers and, and high-tech engineers in particular. Uh, we're particularly focused on design and architect engineers uh, who have more influence over the experience level, the user experience for people with disabilities. And that's really what the third wave of accessibility, I believe, is all about. It's really uh, moving to a more pervasive, more personalized, uh, and optimized uh, accessibility through the transformation of, of user interfaces and, and data and utility and things that are associated with, with emerging technologies. So uh, you'll note on, on the title slide, uh, and I should preface an awful lot about what I say is, uh, and, and what, uh, what the Passiello Group or TPG is all about, we primarily work in the private sector. We're, we're primarily working with industry and vendors. Uh, Passiello Group is, is really a software consultancy. Uh, almost 95% uh, of our clients are, are major technology clients or, or, or industry vendors who are demonstrating, as, as uh, I'll talk about a little bit later, um, a definitive interest in adapting uh, their technologies uh, to users with disabilities. Now, the reasons uh, for doing that are, um, uh, are numerous. Some of them are financial. Some of them are based on, on laws and, and, and legal mandates that they have to uh, adapt to and, and, and address. Uh, but by and large, what we're starting to see is exactly what I talk about there in that brief quote, where accessibility now is, is really providing an opportunity. Uh, it's an opportunity for, uh, for small businesses and large business enterprises to start disrupting their competitors and use it as, as, as a competitive advantage where new markets are starting to present themselves. And uh, as a result, there's a, a return on, on the investment that previously had never been seen from the standpoint of trying to accommodate uh, users and individuals with disabilities. In the past, the, the mindset has always been that uh, we're making accommodations primarily because we have to or being forced to. Um, and uh, that mindset is, is really being changed through the transformation of, of technologies and, and the emerging technologies that we see available, including projects like, like Fluid. So we'll see how that is. 
So on the uh, on the next slide uh, that we're moving to is let me just kind of give you uh, what the general state or the current state uh, of IT accessibility is today. And uh, I have this uh, uh, illustration here on my slide of, uh, of an individual kind of scratching his head. And, and more often than not, this is really a perspective from, from industry. Uh, they hear an awful lot about standards. They hear an awful lot about different technologies, you know, the AJAX, the HTMLs, the uh, uh, PDF Flash. Um, they hear about things really to open source and open document. Um, on the accessibility level, they hear about APIs, uh, you know, buzzwords like MSAA, which is uh, Microsoft's active accessibility within their Windows platform, uh, pre-Vista, uh, pre by the way. Well, uh, then they hear about IA2, which is an enhanced version of MSAA that is being promulgated by corporations like IBM and Sun. And, uh, and then they hear about uh, UIA, uh, which is the uh, new uh, API, accessibility API on, on the Microsoft platforms. They couple that with, with standards uh, that they hear about. For example, uh, Utah was referring to the IMIS standards. Uh, many of them uh, correlate to the uh, current web standards that have been promoted by the uh, World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C, and the program office. It, it has uh, dedicated to accessibility, the Web Accessibility Initiative, uh, that is uh, led by uh, Judy Brewer down in Boston out of MIT. And uh, then they hear about uh, other uh, uh, standardization processes uh, in standard organizations. The new one right now is called TITAC, and I'll talk about TITAC uh, shortly, but uh, TITAC is the new advisory committee uh, chartered with uh, dealing with Section 508 here in the United States. Um, as well as the uh, Section 255 of the Telecommunications Act. We have international laws and mandates. Canada uh, has its common look and feel. Um, uh, law, for example, and standard over in Europe, they have the EU initiative and, and uh, their Disability Discrimination Acts, which are, tend to be more commonplace outside of, uh, outside of the U.S., in fact. And, uh, and then people are worried about, well, how do we get certified? Is certification a, an issue? Is this something we should address? Should we be self-certified? Should we be third-party certified? This is actually one of the biggest uh, areas of, of debate right now in Europe um, is the concept and notion of certification and how uh, it will take place. Uh, so there's just this whole plethora, a variety of of different issues when it comes to accessibility around software and, and, and information technologies. And frankly speaking, it's, it's really, uh, it's not too difficult to, to be uh, empathetic, if not sympathetic, um, to, uh, to industry at large who are trying to figure out where in the world do we go? How do we deal with this? How do we address, uh, as, as you just said uh, earlier, um, this whole AT, uh, assistive technology, IT interoperability, uh, because it's such a personalized and, and, uh, environment and, and, and user experience. Um, so as, as, as I state there in the slide, uh, to say the least, in many cases, it can appear to be confusing. Now, that problem can be exasperated a little bit more as we move on to the next slide. Uh, because of the accessibility gap. 
And the accessibility gap is really takes in a, a couple of different uh, venues here, so to speak. First of all, we have emerging technology. You know, we have the, the second lives. So we've got the flickers. We've got, you know, even uh, hardware devices, you know, like an iPod or an iPhone, uh, which tends, as, as we would want it to go, uh, to grow at, at very fast rates. You know, it, I think a few years ago we were talking about inter Internet rates, and, and I think uh, as far as emerging technology is concerned today, it's, it's going even faster than that. So soon enough we'll be at the rate of sound, and then, and then light, and then who knows, we'll be at some warp speed that, that, that came out of, uh, uh, um, out of Star Trek. Um, but those technology rates and the growth of those emerging uh, rates are, are, tend to be growing at a rate more powerful than personal assistive technology. Uh, you just said uh, earlier that uh, more often than not, people with uh, disabilities have a personalized assistive technology. It may be a screen reader, which is a kind of a, a way of voicing what's on your, on your computer system. Uh, or on your website, for example. There are screen magnifiers, so they kind of enhance the experience for individuals that have various visual disabilities but, but may not be blind. Uh, there are tools for individuals who have speech uh, uh, disabilities, for, for example, uh, or mobility disabilities. Uh, for example, uh, Dragon Naturally Speaking is a very common uh, assistive technology that's used by uh, individuals who have uh, re repetitive strain injury uh, in, individuals that may be uh, paraplegic or even quadri quadriplegic. In fact, actually, we know people that are blind that use, uh, that use uh, technologies like uh, speech recognition uh, applications. But the point is, is that the emerging technology is growing so fast, so robust, and so powerful that these, these small uh, assistive technologies aren't able to keep up with that rate of growth. And so you kind of see that captured in the graph on the chart. Um, the other problem is that uh, because the vendors associated with the uh, assistive technologies um, are not closely linked, uh, or as closely linked as they ought to be or integrated within the product uh, life cycle with these emerging technologies, they tend to be very reactive in nature. So they kind of wait for something to happen and then they respond. Let me give you uh, a little bit of an illustration uh, of what I mean. Windows, just the graphical user interface, has been around for some 30 years now. Today, you would imagine or you would think that the user experience for screen readers, which have been around just about as long, would be uh, practically you know, an, an invisible experience. It would be optimized for accessibility so that users with, uh, with visual disabilities, for example, would have minimal, in fact, uh, you, one would think, no problem in, uh, in using a graphical user interface. And in fact, that's not true. Some 30 years later, we're still grappling with the effects of standard uh, PC-based um, uh, uh, or Windows-based operating systems. They still present some challenges, and that's because of this reactive kind of uh, approach towards accessibility, um, both on the side of the AT vendor uh, as well as the, as, as the side of the, the, the IT vendor 
who, you know, has their own responsibility as far as ensuring um, the kind of information, the kind of handshaking and, uh, and data exchange that needs to take place to ensure an optimized uh, uh, experience for the user with a disability. So the net effect is that individuals with disabilities and older adults, because we're not just talking about people with disabilities now uh, who are using assistive technologies. We're talking about individuals who, who are in that third wave uh, uh, sort of uh, elderly generation of, of individuals who have lost their sight or are losing their vision, uh, losing their hearing, and losing some of their mobility. And so they rely on a lot of the technologies uh, that are used by people with disabilities in their day-to-day -day living as well as being plugged in to, uh, to the emerging technologies, they lack mainstream technology inclusion. And, and again, you heard that that was a big word that, that Yuta uh, constantly threaded throughout her presentation. We're talking about inclusive technologies as being the next, uh, as the next key towards uh, the, to the emerging technology and closing that accessibility gap. So it, it at least the appearance up until the last three, four, five years has been, rather than a closing of that gap, it's widening just because of the emergence of, 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 uh, of uh, new technologies that are out there. And we haven't even touched on, on uh, kind of the virtual environments uh, or the, the, the second, second life or immersive environments that are, that are starting to become more commonplace within, the, within mainstream industry and, and technology. However, uh, what we are beginning to see now is a closing of that gap in a lot of different ways. So my next slide, let's look at the first, the, the first uh, part of that third wave, and that's globalization and, the, and, and globalization where connectivity is concerned, because this is, a, this is a big piece. Throughout the world, as you can see uh, illustrated on, uh, on this particular slide, it doesn't matter whether you're in, you know, uh, a, 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 a major population, uh, populated area, major industry nation like the U.S. or, or in Europe or, or uh, over in, in Japan, or if you're touching base with some of the third world nations uh, or some of the nations that are, have been uh, historically behind the, um, uh, the technology curve, so to speak, we're seeing uh, not just the emergence of technology as a whole in IT uh, uh, technology, but we're seeing an emergency, an emergence rather, of connectivity and, and disability, uh, uh, um, or rather accessibility for people with disabilities throughout the world. So Canada, the U.S., the, uh, the U.K., actually all of Europe, uh, uh, emerging markets in China, in Japan, excuse me, in Brazil, uh, increased exposure in areas like Japan and Australia. Worldwide, we are seeing a globalized accessibility movement, if you will, for an inclusive society. And uh, a number of different nations on an individual and on a collective basis, and, and when I think about collective, I think an awful lot about what's going on in the EU today through its e-inclusion uh, effort, and Parliament being uh, directly involved to ensure uh, accessibility to people with, with disabilities in, uh, in technology realms. Uh, I think that gives us a good, strong basis and a good, strong uh, uh, foundation to start looking at how we can increase accessibility uh, worldwide. So that gives you uh, one threat. 
you know, we're focusing on leveling the, the, the overall playing field. So globalization and connectivity as it relates to accessibility is a, is a key part of that value chain. In the next slide, uh, we're just talking about the Internet, the information highway, and how uh, laws, for example, on a national level have uh, really had a, had a major effect. Years ago, when, uh, when, we, when I used to speak at uh, technology uh, conferences, about the only thing that we could talk about basically was the, was the Americans with Disabilities Act. And uh, as I look at this slide, it says 10 years ago, because basically that's, that's when the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act went into effect. But really, the kind of things that we talked about 10, 15, 20 years ago tended to focus more on the brick-and-mortar type of making sure doors were open. Uh, you uh, talked about curb cuts, so, so access ways to buildings and things like that. That was primarily the big talk when it came to, uh, to people with disabilities. But then in the uh, late 80s uh, and mid uh, to late 90s, um, there, there was an act that uh, we call today Section 508. Pre-Section 508 was called the Computer Accommodation Act at the federal level, started to look at the importance of computers as they uh, were, um, uh, were heavily invested in uh, through, throughout society and the effect that they would have in the lives of people with disabilities. And so the federal government here in the U.S. started to look at that, started to look at ways to ensure that computers themselves and operating systems and applications were accessible. So we had uh, Section 508 through, went through uh, a couple of iterations five years ago. Uh, it really became the launching pad and, and uh, the model for technology where the web and software and user interface design and electronic information access was, uh, was concerned. Today, as a result of Section 5, we're seeing new laws, new mandates. We're seeing states throughout the U.S. that have adopted Section 508 uh, in, 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 uh, in parts or in whole. In fact, 20 states in the U.S. have adopted it in whole. Uh, all 50 states have, have it in parts in one way or another. We're also seeing the, the increase of new laws. So we've got the Wired for Health initiative that has accessibility as part of its focus. We have the Air Carrier Access Act that has adopted Section 508. So this means uh, those in the, the uh, airline industry and the hospitality industry now need to start looking on how they can ensure that their webs are accessible to people with disabilities, so their reservation systems, their kiosks, their information kiosks, uh, um, their customer service. Uh, uh, organizations and, and, and features and functions are, um, are accessible to people with disabilities, both face-to-face, um, -face, through telecommunications, and through, uh, through the Internet. And uh, we've just, over the last uh, 15, 16 months, have the, uh, the TITAC uh, Advisory Committee, which is working on the next version of Section 508 and Section 255. Again, I'll talk about that in just a few minutes. And on the horizon, we see a number of new efforts uh, we could start looking at, at things around uh, web access device interdependence, alliance and collaboration, uh, partnerships between industry standards organizations and disability organizations. We see uh, advances in, 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 uh, in the web as it relates to voice browsers and, and uh, the web anytime, anywhere, uh, accessibility, uh, device profiles, so this kind of 
focuses on uh, a little bit about what Yuda uh, was referring to on the personal, personalization notion. So personalization more along the lines of the interface adapting to the user in a kind of uh, uh, just-in-time uh, type of, uh, of uh, effect as opposed to uh, a reactive or, or I think uh, she used the expression just in case. In other words, just in case people with disabilities happen to be part of this experience, we better make sure we accommodate them. We're moving to a much more inclusive and, uh, and pervasive model where user preferences and profiles are built into the IT infrastructure and as a result the adaptation takes place automatically as a transformation as opposed to a transaction uh, type of notion. So I really believe and we're in really uh, beginning to see that the Internet itself is the second piece of, of that leveling of the playing field that we're talking about. Now the, 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 uh, the next slide talks about where we're starting to see some of the obvious new growth. That is the emergence uh, of uh, disability social networks and systems. So, uh, you heard Yuta refer to the inclusion of social networking uh, as being uh, a key ingredient to, to the uh, Fluid product and, and uh, or project rather, an initiative, as well as to the overall learning experience between uh, learners and also professionals uh, with disabilities who are involved in creating that learning environment. But, but the whole concept of social networking is, is really starting to create a great store. It's bringing people with disabilities together and uh, addressing their own needs and having discussions, the kind of uh, you know, water cooler effect that, that we talked about, getting around, working together, doing things sociably, doing education. Uh, we've seen a little bit of that, for example, the uh, AOL ability. Um, uh, site is a, is a, it was a first project that uh, that we were involved in. My company was involved in helping to create. I think it's 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 one step towards the notion of blogs and wikis that are becoming very popular. And uh, we've got a number of online consumer services between news, banking, shopping, travel, business to business that have disability focus as part of the the overall user experience. Um, uh, in, in AOL, uh, uh, some uh, banking, online banking like Wells Fargo, Bank of America, thinking of uh, uh, Wachovia have been involved in financial services. Some of the news uh, outlets are providing those kind of services that are personalized not just in the content, but also in the features and the functionality uh, to address uh, people with disabilities. And we're also seeing a move even to the gaming high-tech Internet uh, TV games like All in Play, where uh, All in Play has this unique feature of, of being created so that it's completely accessible to blind and low vision uh, uh, users with screen readers and screen magnifiers, but it, it doesn't uh, have any built-in prejudice. So users without disabilities uh, can play uh, poker or some of the card games that, that, that they feature here with users with disabilities. And because it's on the web, nobody, nobody knows who's got what as far as the disability is concerned. And the only feature and function that, that anybody cares about at this level is winning, right, which is, which is what games are all about. So again, the whole concept, the whole growth of, of, of social networks and social systems is, uh, is being taken uh, uh, very seriously and, and growing uh, for people with disabilities as well. Now all of this really 
these, uh, um, uh, this leveling of the playing field, the emergence of technologies that are built on transformation and optimized accessibility have a lot of key themes, and that's what my next slide uh, talks about, next generation IT accessibility and where the focus will be on. So you're going to hear an awful lot about standards harmonization. You know, referred to a couple of standards when she talked about ISO 4751 and IMIS. There are other standards like uh, the ANSI 400 uh, Human Factors Ergonomic Society, uh, or, or ANSI 200, I, I'm sorry, uh, that addresses accessibility. There's the TITAC standard, there's the World Wide Web uh, uh, standards. There are a number of standards that are out there now that are addressing accessibility, and one of the things that's lacking, so to speak, is a true harmonization of those standards so that IT vendors uh, know how to develop or know what to develop to, as well as AT vendors. So uh, again, you're going to see that one of the key themes and key threads of the TITAC is, in fact, standards harmonization, to create a model that everybody can work from, can build to, can design to, can develop to, in order to ensure harmonization uh, at both sides of the, of the equation here uh, where uh, uh, assistive technology and information technology are concerned. Which brings us to the next key theme, ATIT interoperability. As much as those of us that are in uh, the AT uh, world like to believe that we've got better experiences, which we do today compared to even three, four, five years ago, there is still kind of, uh, I heard it described last week, this building of a bridge, and the bridge is being built from both ends, the AT side and the IT side, but once they hit the middle, there, there still seems to be that gap right there, and that gap is uh, related to some inconsistencies about the approach and the design and the architecture, the underlying architecture, uh, as it relates to the interoperability between the two technologies. So that's becoming a key theme, a key goal, a key objective uh, amongst those of us that are working in this field. <coughs> Excuse me. Immersive interfaces are, are, uh, are being looked at, uh, being researched, so I expect to hear a lot more about advances there. Functional performance is a, is a key objective, a key notion of what we're trying to achieve uh, in, in the technology field. By functional performance, we're meaning uh, we're, we're really focused on usability. We're, we're not just creating a, a user experience where a person can kind of get themselves through an application. We want that user experience to be optimized to the level of what a user without disability would experience. So uh, in, in, in collaboration with functional performance around or across a number of uh, disability communities, we're focusing on usability and testability, um, uh, quality assurance, if you will, to ensure that the user experience is optimized for people with disabilities. And then certification will be, uh, of course, a, a new theme, an important theme as we move forward. So, as I start to wind down the presentation, let me just introduce you to uh, what I like to call the juice, or, or as uh, Evan Schwartz uh, says, the, uh, discusses the creative fuel 
of projects and initiatives that I believe will drive the next level of emerging technologies and the next and cause the next paradigm shift for for accessibility. And there are three or four key projects that I want to focus on. The first is the TITAC. The TITAC is, is a telecommunications and electronic information technology advisory committee that I have the privilege of uh, uh, co-chairing with, uh, with my um, colleague Jim Tobias for the, uh, for the U.S. Uh, federal government. It's an advisory committee that is taking two existing uh, technology uh, uh, acts and mandates in the U.S., Section 255 of the Telecommunications Act and Section 508, the Rehab Act, combining them and creating a model, as I talked about earlier, um, uh, a model standard. And uh, just to give you an, a notion of who's involved in this, we have 42 members of this advisory committee. It's the largest single advisory committee ever created by the, by the uh, federal government to address accessibility and technology. It includes federal agencies, uh, state agencies, state government, industry, disability organizations, and for the first time, again, in, in the context of a disabilities uh, mandate, we have international inclusion. So we have representatives from uh, Europe, from Canada, Australia, and Japan uh, involved on this committee, as you can see portrayed there on, on the slide. We have key themes and key goals, harmonization, ATIT interoperability, testability. We're addressing cognition for the first time. We'll have standards and guidelines as they relate to cognitive issues of people with disabilities. We're dealing with emerging technologies, and we're also focusing on the overall economic impact. In, in the uh, next slide, the next big project is the uh, ACT, uh, ACTF project, Accessibility Tools Framework. This is a brand new open source initiative built uh, in align with the, the Eclipse Technology Project. And uh, as I note here on the slide, I'm just happy to announce yesterday, yesterday this project was formally approved by the uh, Eclipse um, uh, executive staff. So it too has great worldwide international support. 23 different organizations, including four universities, which by the way, uh, University of Toronto, where uh, uh, Utah is, in, uh, is, is from, uh, and the ATARC Center is, is one of the uh, key members of that. Seven industry players and five disability organizations. So it's got an international scope to develop a framework, a developer framework really, consisting of four core components. Uh, validation, presentation, uh, alternative interfaces, and infrastructure, all of this, and, and I really like the fact that uh, Utah uh, uh, brought this about and brought this in, all of this focus on the transformation of content utility and information and the overall user experience and being driven at that level uh, for, user, for, for the overall user experience in an open source model. So we'll have a number of different uh, collaborators and contributors involved in this. And again, um, I, I, I feel I'm being a little bit self-edifying here, but I'm not, it's not intentional. Just because I happen to be part of these things, I've been very fortunate. Um, I'm co-leading that uh, particular effort, the ACTF project, with uh, Cheiko Asakawa from IBM Japan. So it's, a, it's, a, it's really actually kind of a cool project from a technology standpoint, and I'm really happy to be part of that. On the next slide, uh, another gr initiative, a global initiative, is the UN's uh, G3 ICT initiative. Now, the 
G3ICT initiative tends to be a little bit more about policy making. Um, and ICT, by the way, in case you're, you're not as familiar with uh, that frame, we tend to talk about ENIT here in the U.S., outside of the U.S., because we always have to be dinner, different. ICT is information communication technology. It's basically the same thing. But uh, the G3 ICT has three primary objectives, as, uh, as stated here on the, on the slide. It's, first of all, to identify and promote ICT solutions for persons with disabilities via best practices and standards and guidelines. It's to promote the acceleration of development within the scientific industri in industrial standardization and economic uh, communities and con uh, where it relates to economic conditions to make ICT solutions more affordable. This is particularly true around uh, uh, third world nations uh, and nations where connectivity is a little bit more uh, difficult just because of geographical locations and whatnot. And uh, finally, the objective of G3ICT is to coordinate a multi-year capacity building program for legislators, uh, regulators, and uh, local authorities. So that's just getting launched. It's, uh, it, it, you should be hearing a lot more of it, and uh, you can find more information about it uh, up there on the G3ICT uh, website. The last uh, project that I'd like to talk about is Big Sky. In fact, I'm actually speaking to you from my hotel room in Connecticut because I'm driving into New York City tonight uh, to be part of a, um, a think tank session with some, some, uh, some great folks who are actually out of mainstream industry, uh, venture capitalists who are involved in working on Big Sky. And, and Big Sky really is, being, uh, is a project launched by the United Serial Palsy uh, organization. It's a national effort to create a new vision of the future for people with disabilities. And what you see on the screen uh, under Big Sky is really the mind map. And it, it was a great effort that UCP put together um, with, uh, with other technology uh, contributors to kind of give us a vision of what we think the future will be, this whole inclusive notion of people with disabilities around technology. And my role in this, as I'm just starting to uh, begin to find out, is to uh, lead the technology uh, effort along, uh, along the Big Sky uh, project uh, timeline. So, so there are a number of challenges that we've already talked about uh, that I hope that uh, we'll, we'll begin to address. The first part of that is going to involve social networking and, uh, and some of the, uh, the things that uh, are involved at that level. So as, we, as I conclude, and I apologize uh, for going a little bit over time here, Scott, uh, but let me just talk to, you, talk to you about what I really think the third wave is all about. And it, from, from my perspective, it's about making accessibility irrelevant. So if you're familiar with, with the blue ocean kind of strategy, uh, you know, making your competition irrelevant, in this case, it's about making accessibility invisible. It's making it irrelevant. It's making it so that it's a non-issue where today we have to kind of, you know, be in this civil rights kind of uh, proactive notion. It's making accessibility so irrelevant that it is part of the common user experience. It is a transformation. It is an inclusive effort, and, and it's part of our everyday life. So it doesn't matter what your abilities are, whether they are disabilities or, or uh, 
whether it has something to do with your geographical location, whether it has to do with your devices. It, it, um, the whole notion and the whole concept and spectrum of accessibility along the continuum as far as uh, technology is concerned is made totally, irre totally irrelevant because uh, users are adapted to in a very pervasive way as opposed to you having to make the adaptation. And I believe all that will happen because we've got this collaboration and harmonization uh, a kind of underlying current and foundation principles amongst people with disabilities, the global initiatives that we talked about, industry and business being involved, and government standards uh, promoting accessibility for people with, with disabilities. So, you know, in, in, in just kind of the final words, that in, in conclusion, I see a lot of great things that are going on being performed in a number of different great ways, including many of the efforts that, that you and her staff have been involved in, in the Fluid Project and whatnot, as well as knowing that all of this in, in the long run is for great people. And by great people, I'm not just pigeonholing people with disabilities. I'm talking about people, by and large, throughout the world on an international basis. And with that, I'm finished, Scott. Great. Thank you, Mike. Um, I want to remind our viewers that uh, today's webcast will be available in archive format in about two weeks. You can find that off the maclearning.org website uh, where all our archives are hosted by Duke University in our iTunes U uh, implementation there. Uh, we have uh, some questions, and uh, Yuta, I think the first one is for you. Um, you spoke a little bit about the SKIP project. Could you... Uh, give some pointers on where we could find more information. Is that just a University of Toronto project or where, where can viewers find out more information about SKIP? Um, probably the best place to go is to our ATRC website, atrc.utoronto.ca, and then click on Research and Development Projects. And there you can, there is a link to the SKIP um, project as well as approximately 18 other projects um, that are that we're conducting at the moment at the ATRC. Okay, great. Uh, and Mike, this one is for you. Uh, you talked about the ACTF project uh, based on the Eclipse IDE. Can you give a little bit more detail about what what are the benefits for developers with this initiative, uh, and and maybe give some indication of. Um, if I develop an Eclipse using this, is this uh, automatically cross-platform? Kind of give me the, the developer's details on what, what's important there. Uh, well, it is built on the Eclipse uh, uh, platform, and the focus of this is to, cre is to create uh, a developer toolkit and framework so that uh, we, can, we can achieve cross-platform uh, accessibility. Uh, you, you'll see the slide, the slide doesn't do the project, uh, the, the justice that, uh, uh, that it will include as far as uh, the areas of technology that we're going to talk about and what we're going to address because, you know, it will have its web components, it will have uh, office application components, it will address multimedia, uh, it certainly will, will address uh, just uh, um, off-the-shelf um, uh, application development as well, but the, the key here is to create an, a, an API and a transformation service so that uh, developers are developing to that, that API 
and as long as the hooks are in place, they won't have to do any more work. The, the, the rest of, the, the, rest of the, uh, uh, the, the engine here that's, that's uh, called out there in the model service uh, in the infrastructure will functionally do that optimization on the, uh, uh, within, on the server side and output it to, to, to the client side for, uh, for the user. Okay, great, thank you. Um, here's a very practical question from one of our viewers. Uh, I'll, I'll provide a little bit of context. Uh, clearly, the phenomenon of podcasting uh, is, is really just taken off exponentially, which means that more and more digital content is being made, and uh, we certainly see that uh, ramping up even more in the, in the near term. Uh, the question is, how best or what recommendations would you have for adding closed captioning to video recordings uh, other than transcription services? Any, any uh, technologies you see out there today or on the horizon that would sort of automate closed captioning, basically speech to text? There are, there are a number of projects. However, um, there's obviously a limit to how accurate um, um, the voice recognition is. Usually, um, w one um, example is a group called CRIM, and they actually use uh, voice recognition to uh, caption, automatically caption live sportscasts and news um, broadcasts. Uh, however, the, the system is set up such that there is still a human editor to help uh, fix that. The, um, one of the issues we have with podcast, or actually more with the iPod, of course, is that we st we're still waiting for the caption feature to work on the newest video iPod, and hopefully Apple will address that fairly soon. Yeah, I, this is Mike Tassiel. I, I agree with Utah. Um, I've seen a number of different projects. IBM has their own little product called uh, ViaScribe. Uh, I actually, I, I think one of the best implementations that I've seen of a uh, voice recognition-based captioning system uh, is, is one that I can't talk about too much because it's being, it's actually being developed for a, uh, uh, an NSA national security agency uh, uh, government um, implementation. But in fact, I've, I've seen it literally recognize speech in satellite environments and write out the text, which uh, from there can be written right to, right to the, uh, the caption file. Um, so, yeah. One one other thing I would add is, um, for non-speech recognition-based captioning, there are some really great tools that make it very easy, especially for volunteer or amateur um, captioners, to create captions, especially if they're uh, a few minutes. On, the video content is only a few minutes long, and especially also if you have a transcript of what is said. Quite frequently, we um, lecturers will have lecture notes or um, individuals who are creating a video will have some type of script. So uh, one tool um, that's uh, open source and freely available is called Capscribe, um, and that's actually for the, the Mac. But And um, WGBH has another tool called Magpie as well. Okay. Yuja, could you um, clarify? You, you mentioned a tool. I think you said CRIM. Was that right? C-R-I-M? Yeah, CRIM is a research organization based out of Montreal, and they have been working um, 
quite a bit on the issue of voice, use of voice recognition for captioning. Um, they have uh, a few different tools, both for uh, post-production broadcast, for real-time broadcast, and, and various other uh, caption challenges. Okay, great. Um, in closing, I um, would like to pose kind of a big picture question to both of you. Um, given uh, the, the sort of accessibility gap between new technologies coming out, um, and Mike, you gave the example of almost 30 years of, of GUI-based uh, operating systems and the gap with screen readers for those. What, what, do you, what are your thoughts uh, on the next five years as we have more and more ways to interact with data and content, anything from the iPhone with, uh, with the touch screen to uh, voice-driven operating systems, where do you see us in five years as the technology evolves, it gives us more methods, more modalities to interact with uh, objects and information and content. Uh, is that a, is that a, does that portend good things for inclusive, uh, inclusivity for uh, end users, or is that just more of the same problem? I, I think the, the one thing that we need to do, it, certainly in education, one sort of philosophical shift is to, um, when we're creating learning materials or when, we, when we're preparing lessons uh, or for anyone that's a content developer, not to immediately think about the method of presentation, um, but to think about what it is that we want to communicate and then allow for a flexible set of presentation possibilities. And I think the technology and the shift in um, the various platforms that we have available to us helps to shift, make that shift. So um, if I'm someone that's creating content for the web, because it may in fact be displayed on a mobile device, on an iPhone, on um, any number of um, platforms or clients, then um, I need to create it in such a way that the presentation isn't fixed, that it can be flexible. That same flexibility bodes very well for someone with a disability. So in, in, in the, I agree with Utah at the technology level. Let me just tell you where I think things are going to change from the business standpoint, because this is where I believe ultimately uh, we, the biggest mountain, so to speak, has, has, has to be moved. Uh, for years, business and industry, high-tech industry in particular, really never saw a value proposition uh, in accommodating users with disabilities, no matter what it took. I mean, it doesn't have anything to do with the altruistic notion of doing the right thing for, for uh, you know, for, for people. It has all to do with the bottom line. The bottom line is, uh, you know, we're in this uh, business, IT and, and, and emerging technology, to make money. So how do you get them to understand and, and, and see that the uh, population of users with disabilities throughout the world, or, or just keeping it local to, you know, to Canada and to the U.S. and North America, how do you get businesses to see that there is a value proposition? And what the Internet and the web has done, it has exploited the the, the whole notion of a user or an individual with, with a disability uh, because, frankly speaking, users with disabilities can operate on the Internet, on the web, and do day-to-day -day activities, online shopping, online banking, online travel, online government services, those kind of things that are staples 
uh, education, uh, you know, staples as far as services and applications are concerned and day-to-day living things. They're doing those through the web and through the Internet. As a result, they are becoming more of a voice on the web and on the Internet, and businesses are starting to say, you know, my goodness, there, there's, there is a population segment, a market segment that I hadn't thought about. Uh, very quickly, I'll give you, a, a, this is a, 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 a true experience that we had with a major online office uh, supply vendor where we went down there and we just basically said, look, uh, if you took the whole disabilities population, disabilities and elderly generated population, which is about 75 million people in the U.S., and you hack that number down for every reason you could think of, they don't like you, they don't like your technology, they don't like your processes, they can't use your website, you hack, hack that whole number down from 75 million down to 1 million. And you took that 1 million number and you multiplied it by, uh, let's say a person makes on average two purchases a year for a print cartridge, which goes for an average price of about $25. That's $50 million of unperceived revenue. The real eye-opener was when that same company came back and said, you know what, the average person makes six purchases a year, and it's usually at about $200 per purchase. So there's a lot of unperceived revenue that becomes the ultimate driving force, and that's where industry is really is now starting to get that message that they weren't getting five years ago. The only way they were getting it five years ago was through you know lawsuits. So now we're seeing that mindset change, and they are working harder uh, than ever to make the new technologies, the emerging technologies, uh, more accessible to people with disabilities. I want to add just one um, concern about Web 2.0 and sort of the trend. Um, one of the things that is the sort of principal value that seems to be promoted by Web 2.0, although the, the social net networking component is great, is the value of popularity. Um, anyone who it, – it's the volume of hits, it's the number of people that choose um, a particular item that – raises the prominence and priority of that item. Take tag clouds, take um, many of the um, folksonomy uh, utilities, etc. And that raises a huge concern because if people with disabilities are not able to access uh, the web applications or th those particular web environments, then of course they can't add to the that count. Um, and they quickly disappear or, be, or become invisible. So um, while social networks, Web 2.0, has the potential of providing a lot of good social support, it also has the potential of, uh, because of the way that things are structured and because of the way things are given priority, of um, excluding people with disabilities even more. And I think one of the things we need to do is to look at how we can promote other values in those types of environments. Well, great. I'd like to thank uh, both of our guests today, uh, Mike Pasiello and Yuta Treveranis, uh, for joining us. And I think uh, the information you provided was great. Um, if there, there are some things in your slides and some resources maybe on your websites that we can maybe uh, sort of capture and put on the maclearning.org website for our viewers to hit, uh, particularly some of the initiatives that you mentioned on, on the webcast this morning. Again, I'll remind our viewers that our next uh, webcast next month is October 31st. It's our Halloween webcast uh, featuring Mike Shabanek, product marketing uh, manager for 
uh, Mac OS 10 client, um, and he will be talking about some of the new accessibility features in Leopard. So please join us next month, and thanks, and we'll see you next month.